Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Today, I'm interviewing Pallavi Lakshmikant, who is a graduate student at the University of Adelaide in Australia and who is conducting her research on metabolic health in households in India when the lockdown began. She's going to tell us a bit about her everyday food life and how it relates to her work. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, my first question for you is just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, what it's like in India during lockdown. <laughs> um, so I am originally uh, from Hyderabad in India, and I'm right now back there to do my field work. Uh, which is for my PhD. And I'm doing my PhD at the University of Adelaide. And I'm exploring subjects around medical anthropology, gender studies, and food. And my research focuses on the relationship between metabolic health and food markets in urban India. Uh, I basically study how classes with purchasing capacity uh, cook, eat, and buy food. Uh, to be able to manage their diabetes and how um, grocery stores, delivery systems and specialty food products are speaking to these households. Uh, So I started thinking about this a couple of years ago when my mom was diagnosed with diabetes. And around that time, uh, I had spent about five years working in the app-based food delivery industry in Hyderabad. So I was starting to see the many sort of direct and indirect ways in which households with illnesses and these food businesses were speaking to each other. And this was within the wider sort of uh, ecosystem of Indian urban city life, which is pretty stressful and chaotic and polluted. And um, so there were a lot of businesses coming up specifically for metabolic health. And uh, since I saw the industry grow uh, rapidly uh, at at a very fast pace from, and it started from almost nothing. And I was in the thick of this happening. I was really interested in understanding what goes on in the minds of, uh, minds and lives of people of middle and upper middle classes um, that, you know, they were affecting such large scale changes in the economy through their purchasing behaviors. So uh, I just decided to <laughs> dive in. It's very interesting. I feel like this lockdown must have really changed your research a lot. Yeah. Uh, um, I can't tell you. <laughs> I, 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 so uh, my research was uh, very, very, uh, you know, ethnographic, very participant observation centric. So I was spending a lot of time in households and uh, in food businesses and, you know, talking to people face to face. And um, once the lockdown began, it, it just um, just threw everything out of the window. And um, I wasn't really sure what to do. I had to kind of find ways to do interviews online and figure out, you know, how you could enter these households and these spaces um, through virtual means. 
so far i don't feel like i've been successful and it, it's also probably because i have i have done that kind of um intense participant observation staying in people's homes and i i i i can you know make out the difference between doing it virtually and doing it you know in person so i think that's a big difference but i'm hoping that now that uh, some of the lockdown restrictions in hyderabad are starting to ease up uh, just last night the government announced um, that they're going to start letting people drive on the roads uh, you know shops are going to be open every alternate day um, offices are open both public and private and they're going to allow some domestic travel towards the end of this month so it's starting to ease up and i'm hoping that i can you know get back to my my solid field work Well, I want to hear more about your work. We'll get to that later. But I'm, I'm first just curious about how the lockdown has has changed your everyday life and how you eat. Um, yeah, I think before the lockdown began, uh, I was living in another flat with uh, two other women. Uh, so I would usually eat at my participants' houses for two days a week, go over to my parents for lunch for a couple of days. and the rest of the time i would try to make something simple for myself with either paneer or eggs or mushrooms and i would buy these ingredients from the supermarket next door or i would order order them through uh, these delivery apps like uh, swiggy or danzo and i would get them from a nearby grocery store so when the lockdown uh, started i uh, decided to move to my parents because uh, my flatmates were working in these large corporations and they came in contact with a lot of people so uh, i moved to my parents and i also knew that my parents were finding it hard to cook and clean and manage a house on their own and my mom has diabetes and she follows a very strict dietary regimen like she she does intermittent fasting and she's on a keto diet so i thought it was good to you know be able to help out and also have you know the company of family uh, during this time So uh once the lockdown yeah actually started um it was announced very suddenly on March 24th uh, around 8 pm the prime minister announced uh, a sudden lockdown and by midnight uh, there were these uh, you know curfew rules and and restrictions and um we weren't sure where we were going to get what uh, for the next you know two or three days Uh, everything was up in the air shops had just closed down uh there was a lot of chaos frankly uh luckily we had gone shopping the week before and uh you know we had enough to tide us over for a few days um so over that week uh there were members in our residential community who would take turns so they would take a car or a jeep and they would go to a vendor or a farmer and bring sacks of tomatoes and potatoes and onions and you know uh, distribute them in the community uh so that happened for about a week and after that there were some small vendors who were starting to have access to uh, uh vegetables and they would bring that and so essentially i think for the first 15 days of the lockdown all we could get was um, okra brinjal potatoes tomatoes and onions and sometimes there were green chilies we started exploring different permutations and combinations of how we could cook all these vegetables and make all different kinds of curries um using the same stuff <laughs> and um the good thing was we were still getting milk 
So we would make, uh, you know, yogurt and paneer and uh, ghee and cheese at home with it. And that really helped. And after the initial, I think, 20 days, it started to get better. So there would be a government-sponsored van uh, that would come and, and, and stand outside our apartment complex. And they would have some vegetables and uh, fruits, mainly local and seasonal stuff. So we started getting, you know, we started seeing some carrots and some pumpkin and some raw bananas and things like that. So we, we went back to cooking pretty much the same way we would uh, prior to the lockdown. And the only difference was that we weren't eating these exotic or, or specialized, uh, you know, foods like we weren't eating Chinese or Italian or anything. Um, and I think after that, we slowly started venturing to some grocery stores nearby. So we would stand in line to get in. Um, and mainly because my mom has diabetes and, you know, things like uh, stevia, which is the sweetener uh, that she preferred over others. She didn't like uh, artificial sweeteners like aspartame. Um, and these were not considered essential foods uh, in this whole sort of uh, you know, government regulated what is essential and what is not. So things like stevia or even coffee were uh, hard to find. Mm. This is really so fascinating for me to hear about just because here, you know, people are concerned about toilet paper and flour <laughs> not being on themselves. <laughs> they can still get coffee, <laughs> coconut milk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that comparison is a good reminder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we've been fine honestly we've been we've been good. um i'm curious how how all this has just changed you and your household and your relationship to food uh yeah uh i think that i really appreciate cooking uh, a lot more now and the other thing is that you know food has been both important but also kind of not that important. And I realize that that is a position of luck and privilege because I, I have food, so I have the ability to say that. But the other things that I don't have, which is, you know, to, to meet and hug a friend or to go for a drive, these are things I miss more because they, they stand out in stark contrast. Uh, however, the flip side of that is, because I have access to a kitchen and ingredients, uh, food becomes a very important part of my day. Uh, it's the one thing that I have control and agency over. And, uh, you know, I can create it the way I want. So taste is one way I was coping with, you know, what was happening around me. And the funny thing is when the lockdown began and the days sort of started to run into each other and feel the same, <laughs> we, we couldn't make out... Uh, the difference between be, between days and the only thing that was different was what we cooked for that day. Uh, the food tasted kind of bland and it tasted kind of the same. And I don't know how that happened. But uh, the more I got used to the lockdown, uh, food and, and I started kind of figuring out ways to brighten my day and, you know, lift my spirits and food started tasting like itself again. So I started enjoying it and started making things that are tasty but there are days even now that you know when I'm exhausted and frustrated that food loses its taste and and I'm beginning to think about what this is 
um, how does food taste when I feel restricted and how does food taste when I feel like I'm in control? And perhaps this is related to another point uh, that I'm thinking about, uh, which is not just a discovery about myself, but a general discovery around the pandemic and diabetes, is just the idea of restriction and refusal. So I have a gluten allergy and I'm restricted from eating gluten and sugar because sugar aggravates the infection. And my mother is restricted from eating sugar and carbs and And due to the pandemic, we are restricted from either eating out or eating certain kinds of foods because they're not available. Um, At the same time, uh, you know, the way restriction sounds, uh, you know, the way it is performed, particularly among this middle and upper middle classes, is it's not just passive. It's not always a restriction acting on somebody. And this, this reminds me of this incident uh, which happened when I visited one of my participants' um, uh, place and their 10-year-old daughter, uh, who knew that uh, I, I had a pet dog and also knew that I was studying diabetes because she saw me talking to her mom and her grandfather and her father. Uh, and so she comes up to me and she asks me, uh, Akka, which is you know the word for sister, Akka, does your dog have diabetes? I was really, I was kind of stunned. And I was like, I was just wondering, where is this coming from? So, so I asked her, oh, oh, why, why, why do you think that? Why, why do you ask? So she said, um, because your mom has diabetes and she's your mother's baby and diabetes is hereditary. And, and mind you, she's 10 years old, which is... Um, you know provides context so I was even more stunned and at this point I really didn't know what to ask her what to say so I was I was thinking about this for a while and and on 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 my second visit I I went back and and I asked her and incidentally the conversation was about dogs so I asked her uh, Ankita what would a dog with diabetes do so she said uh, if it's given food or if it's given anything sweet, it'll just turn its head away. And she just made this like, hmm, sound like, you know, imitating this, this, this dog that had diabetes that would just kind of turn its head away to reject food <laughs> that's given to it. And she's like, you know, it no, it shouldn't eat. It, it, it'll refuse it. And it, it made me think about where she's seen, you know, diabetes being performed this way. And, and it took me back to seeing her grandfather who at meal times and her grandfather has diabetes, who would refuse uh, sweets or refuse extra helpings of food. And he would just hold up his hand and say, OK, you know, in, enough, you know, I don't want more. Or he, or he would rub his belly to kind of indicate that he's had enough. And at that point, <laughs> I, I realized that this, this refusal is kind of uh, active. It's, it's agentive, it's performative, and it forms the other side of this experience of restriction. And during the, during the pandemic, people who don't have access to food are not even in a position to refuse. However, things like overstocking or not overeating or not overstocking, they aren't just seen as uh, restrictions placed on someone. They're seen as you know, responsible things that one does and it has a different moral register. 
So in this case, thinking through the politics of the ability to refuse is definitely something that's been on my mind. Like looking at, you know, what am I saying or doing when I refuse to eat or refuse to overstock versus what am I saying or doing when I feel restricted? I just have to say, first of all, that it's I'm sitting over here trying not to laugh. As <laughs> 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 you're speaking at this little adorable story. <laughs> But um, I, I'm really interested in this idea uh, that you're talking about, that the, the pandemic sort of places people in this position of maybe like less individual agency um, where they, you know, either have to kind of take what they can get in the case of food or essentially learn to share <laughs> in the yeah. case of overstocking. Um, <laughs> so when you talk about your, your work and with diabetes and with your own diet restri- restrictions, it makes uh, me think that this is something many of us actually deal with all the time, but we don't actually have a sort of collective register to mm. um, deal with that. You don't think about it collectively. Right. Um, and a lot of diseases, a lot of people have all the time, can create all sorts of restrictions on the diet, um, particularly diabetes. Uh, can you perhaps say a bit more about this, your participant experiences with both diabetes and the COVID restrictions together? Uh, yeah, I think... So I, I can, you know, talk about it from this uh, Indian context. And the way I've seen restrictions play out is that I think COVID restrictions or monetary restrictions, accessibility restrictions and dietary restrictions kind of coexist and play into each other uh, to create overall different registers of refusal and restriction. So the interesting thing is when I came into the field and I started asking my participants about what they think is healthy, uh, because usually, you know, the doctors complained is that Indians don't follow proper diet or they don't lead a healthy lifestyle. And um, firstly, not many of my participants really addressed the term health when I asked them that question. They preferred to use phrases like, oh, this is good to eat or, you know, this, this, is, this is the right thing to eat uh, rather than this is healthy which made me really think about how certain words carry uh, a certain Western biomedical history, but us as such an integral part of our research vocabulary. And that's when, you know, that kind of made me question the taken for grantedness of that. And, and for example, like in South India, white rice is a very important part of one's diet. You've grown up eating it. It's quite accessible and affordable, and it's eaten by most people across classes, like from, you know, poor to higher classes. So it's the first thing that the doctor asks, um, you know, the first thing that the doctor asks someone with diabetes to do is to stop eating rice. And for middle and upper class Indians who who are the focus of this study, um, just looking at a dietary restriction, it's not new. You know, they, they uh, you know, women of these households do kind of uh, fast on specific days for whatever reason. Or uh, people, you know, give up eating certain things for a few days or for a few weeks based on some research that they did or, you know, some household Ayurvedic advice they received from their grandmother or their mother. So in particular, and in, in particular, they, they don't mind giving up or restricting things that they sort of morally uh, consider as excess or an indulgence. 
like sweets or alcohol. They're more ready to restrict that and give that up because it falls well into this, you know, aspirational, like good middle class values uh, where one is supposed to strive for abundance, but doesn't indulge in excess. So while for the doctor, for the biomedical doctor, white rice is, you know, uh, seen as either a sugar or a carbohydrate. For my participants, rice is something that, you know, they they have this uh, nostalgia around it. It's also something that is, you know, what they call simple. And they use this word simple a lot and affordable and, of course, incredibly tasty. Like most of them, you know, one of my participants described white rice as, you know, she looks at white rice and her heart trembles. So <laughs> she, she describes her relationship with rice in such a, you know, poetic way. And, and, and it's, it's something that is okay to desire versus something versus sweets or alcohol. It, it doesn't carry the same moral register of excess. So it is a simple pleasure that they have spent their entire lives working for. You know, they've worked to create a comfortable life for themselves. And all they want to do after, you know, sacrificing their lives to take care of their children or, you know, slogging it out for 10 or 15 years in a corporate job is to just eat as much rice as they please. Um, <laughs> so at this point when, you know, the doctor or, or the, the, the dietitian who's coming from this biomedical or nutritionist, nutritional point of view is telling them not to eat rice, it, it almost seems personally insulting because it impinges on their love for food and it impinges on their love for simple food. Uh, they perceive it as a reflection of their own poor behavior in a way. So, you know, either they didn't respect the food enough or they're undeserving of the rewards that they strive for. So I've noticed more that dietary, you know, restriction or dietary compliance is more of a moral challenge. So the organization of life choices and dietary choices is based on what is appropriate to desire. And the ways in which one is supposed to give up something in order to deserve or earn that pleasure or reward. So if you sacrifice your life and your leisure through stressful work, which is a good middle class thing to do, you deserve to eat the things you like. So people with diabetes perform these substitutions in different ways. So for example, one of my participants, he runs for five kilometers in the morning so that he can eat white rice in the afternoon. And the lockdown as a restriction became a very interesting space because for my participants, it was they were already sacrificing something. They were sacrificing different aspects of their life through these restrictions. So they were okay to negotiate and indulge in a little bit of excess. So they, they, they came up to me and they said, you know, I ate sweets and I ate rice and I ate bread. And I, I noticed that it was... They were saying this because they were already sacrificing other things and they were feeling restricted otherwise. So it was an opportunity to let loose in a way. Um, and, and for some of the other participants where their diabetes was much, much uh, uh, higher uh, uh, the, and they were following a strict dietary regimen, the lack of availability of ingredients, you know, it caused some panic initially. But the interesting thing I saw in these households was that families were rallying around. So in households where th there's, a, there's a strict dietary regimen, usually the families uh, also follow the same diet as a person who has diabetes because it's just not feasible to cook, you know, 
two or three different things catering to different desires or interests. So families were saying, okay, you know what? We will eat rice and we will eat bread and we will eat wheat and all these other things um, just so that there is enough millet or coconut flour or almonds for you to stick to, to be able to stick to your regiment, uh, regiment till the end of the lockdown. So in a way, these families kind of learn to share or to refuse, learn to refuse certain food so that the person with the actual restriction could continue to eat. And yeah, like these are the kinds of ideas I've been exploring and it's, it's been very, very interesting so far. Yeah, I, I really like that, you know, you're showing this kind of two, two different examples from your work of, of someone who's um we're using the lockdown as as an excuse to maybe indulge a little bit and then yeah. and then for, on the other side people who are very very panicked about that extra yeah. restriction mm, yeah well i this has been a really fascinating interview and um you know i love how you're weaving your work in and out of of your actually everyday eating right now so it must <laughs> be just uh very fascinating to have this extra layer even if it is causing extra problems getting into the houses yeah I I think that (laughs) I think it's really forced me to be very uh, observant about you know my life and what's going on because I didn't have much of a choice and I decided to kind of use my situation and my mother having diabetes to kind of keep the intensity of the field work and the participant observation up Um, and I feel like it'll help (laughs) overall uh, for for the research and to create context. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and good luck. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tess Bird and Professor Stanley Uliazak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.